Will you please turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And the guys, as each week, have some Bibles. They're going to make their way to the back. And if you need a Bible, just get their attention. They'll give you one of those. Keep it as our gift. Bring it back every Lord's Day as we look at God's Word together. And today, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. As we start this new year, we do so, as always, with a few weeks that we set aside to be reminded of our mission and the goals and objectives that we've set together and to measure our, our progress. And so at the beginning of each year, I take two or three weeks to hopefully refocus our minds on the blessed task that the Lord has given us, measure where we are in its progress, and look at what we need to do in order to advance it still further. I'm going to try to do that in just two weeks, though last year it took three and it may take three uh, this year as well. I want to begin today, though, not by looking at our church particularly, but at the New Testament church generally, and especially at the church to whom the book of 1 Thessalonians was written, because that church is called a model church in verse 7 of chapter 1. And therefore, it's the kind of church that we should all aspire to be. Now, much is said about the model church in the five chapters that comprise this book, and we did a whole series on it five years ago. But in this single message, I intend to focus on just one of the nine verses that Pastor Larry read earlier and relate it directly to our, our mission. Verse 8 says, the Lord's message rang out from you. And I want us to see how it was that, that they did that and how it relates to what we're doing and look to do in the future. But even though we have some focus on that verse, I'll provide explanation of the surrounding verses as well. So let's ask the Lord to, to help us as we do this. Father, we thank you again for sustaining us in the past year. We thank you for bringing us by your grace into this new year. And we as your people look forward to what you're going to do in and through us individually, but also collectively as your church called for this time in this place. We ask you to help us then today to focus our minds on what you did through the early church in the first century, recorded in your word, so that we can mimic that, we can imitate that in our day. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now in the outline that you should have received when you came in, I say first of all this, we have been blessed by the gospel. Verse 4 says, we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that He has chosen you. We've been blessed by the gospel. And this passage says that we have been, I say in the outline, chosen. Now, God's choosing, I don't think I do say that in the outline. Do I say that in the outline? Okay, I do. Now, God's choosing those who will be saved causes people all kinds of, of problems that, in my experience, interacting with people about it, and you must interact about it if you believe the Bible, since this issue appears in Scripture so often. But in my experience, the difficulty comes down to who you are willing to trust to be the ultimate decider regarding salvation. Is it God or is it you? And I suggest that Scripture teaches that if it's left to us, that no one ever gets saved. And no one goes to heaven. Because there is no one who seeks God. And there is no one who does good, and there is no one righteous, according to Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18. 
So I, I recommend that you not trust yourself as the ultimate or initiating decider regarding your eternal destiny. But that is, in fact, what the matter comes down to. Who initiates and who ultimately decides? We have to choose Christ in order to be saved, to be sure, but God must choose us first in order for that to happen. He, the Bible teaches, is the initiator and the ultimate decider. Our very own Dr. Combs wrote a helpful blog article on this issue a few years back, which I would be happy to point you to if you're interested, so just email me and I'll be happy to, to do that. And theologian Richard Mayhew, longtime associate of John MacArthur and the co-author with MacArthur of a systematic theology called Biblical Doctrine, which I believe we have in our resource center. Mayhew asked the question, who is responsible for individual salvation, God or the person? Put another way, did God sovereignly elect us and save us? Or did He act in accord with what He knew we would do? In other words, who makes the first move? Mayhew then lists 25 passages that summarize what Scripture teaches about God's role in salvation. And he suggests rightly that these passages give a sense, quote, a sense of the overwhelming nature of God being the first cause or initiator of the believer's salvation. Now, I'm just going to tell you the things that these verses say God does without giving you the references, but again, happy to pass these on to anybody who is interested. The Bible teaches that God wills, and God draws, and God grants, and God calls, and God appoints, and God predestines, and God prepares, and God causes, and God chooses, and God purposes, and God delivers, and God saves, and God makes alive, and God pours out His Spirit, and God gives us spiritual birth, and God justifies, and God sanctifies, and God glorifies. You get the idea that God is at the center of all of this? And when we get that idea and we understand that and we live accordingly, then guess who gets the glory for it all? God does. Mayhew recommends looking up all of those passages, and I recommend that as well. Again, happy to pass those on to you. We have been chosen. And because we have been chosen, I say in the outline, we have been saved. Verse 4 Paul, who wrote Thessalonians, says he knows that the Thessalonians have been chosen by God, and then he begins to identify how it is that he knows that, verse 5. Because, here's how I know this, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. That is, you heard the gospel, and it had its intended effect on you, so that's how I know that you were chosen. Otherwise, it's only words. But when the Spirit moves on the heart, it changes the individual, demonstrating that they were chosen. The Bible says, faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes by the Word of God. The fact is, no one is saved apart from hearing the gospel. And all of those who do hear the gospel have the theoretical possibility of salvation. However, merely because the gospel is brought and preached does not mean it will be effective necessarily. God must bless the preaching to produce the salvation. And Paul says, I know that you've been chosen because that happened. It had that effect that can only come from God. And so there is the general call, what theologians call the general call of the gospel, and then the effectual call. The general call is whenever the gospel goes out, generally it's given to all and all are bid 
to come and receive it. But the Bible also teaches that we have not only total sinfulness, total depravity, but total inability to actually respond, dead in trespasses and sins. And so God it gives to those whom he has chosen the effectual call, and that is what the, theologian, the Thessalonians experienced. It has effect upon the heart because God makes the dead heart alive. Jesus said, many are called, but few are chosen. And so verse 5 is speaking of the effectual call of the gospel. It's the same message to everybody who hears, but it had good effect on some and falls on deaf ears for others. The initial proof that they are God's chosen is that they responded to the message. It was effective, as it always is, on God's people because it was attended by, verse 5 says, power, the Holy Spirit, and deep conviction. All of us who are saved are so because God has graciously chosen us for His own reasons, for His own purposes, and nothing within you and nothing within me, and He receives the praise. The gospel has come to us with great effect, and therefore the gospel has changed us, verse 6. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. They followed us. The Thessalonians did, verse 6 says. That would be Paul and his associates when he went to the city of Thessalonica, Silas and Timothy. Paul said elsewhere, follow me as I follow Christ. So this lays great importance on the life and character of the messenger. At first, for a new convert, practically all they know of Christ is what they see in the person who initially gave them the gospel. The word translated imitators is the one from which we get our English word mimic. The theolog- the, the, I keep saying that. The Thessalonians sought to mimic Paul and Silas and Timothy and ultimately Christ. So we've been changed by the gospel in that we externally follow the Lord. But there's an internal change of attitude as well. Verse 6 says, you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. The evidence of our changed lives is that we follow Christ and that we have the capacity to experience joy in the midst of trial. Now this most definitely shows the supernatural work of God as it's certainly not natural for us to face difficulty with joy. The word that's translated joy is karain, the Greek word karain. It's related to the word that's translated grace in your New Testament, charis. This attitude of peace, contentment that Christians have, even in severe trial, is a gracious gift of God. Now notice something about the first century Christians, that suffering was a way of life for most of them. No one would have said that to be a Christian in the first century was a good idea. I mean, if you're just thinking about your own personal peace and safety, (laughs) becoming a Christian really wasn't a good idea. It wasn't a, a smart move from a human standpoint. But in our day, in the, pre, in the absence of persecution, it becomes easy to say, I'm a Christian. And the question is, do these kinds of evidences display themselves in our lives to show that we truly are Christians, like they did in the lives of Thessalonians? Some years ago, I was at the King's Island Amusement Park. You know how that goes when you're at an amusement park and it takes you two hours to get on a ride. And you've got the turnstiles that keep, you know, winding through. And so for your, you know, an hour and a half, you see 
the same people go by you. So by the time you get to that 90th minute, you have read every t-shirt. That <laughs> well, one guy had a t-shirt on that said, Jesus, Satan, opposite each other. Heaven, hell, opposite each other. Life, death. And then at the bottom it said, no brainer. Well, it's a no brainer in our day because it's not costly. You see, in their day, it was costly. And it may become more costly in our day. We'll see what the Lord has for us. Now, please understand, I do not pray for persecution on the church. In fact, I would rather we do this, and we would be wise to do this, to live all out for the gospel in the comfort and the freedom that we have now. And to work while it is day and while we, and while we can. But as persecution is needed in order to motivate God's church, then, Lord, so be it. Another evidence of our having been changed by the gospel is the fruit that is born in our lives. Verse 7. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. We're told that the Thessalonians became an example, a model for other believers in surrounding regions. The word for model is the Greek word tupos. We get type from that. You were a type, you were a, a model, you were an example for fellow believers and, as we're going to see, churches around you. Now, this is the only church in the New Testament of whom this is said. This church is said to be a model church, and I want us to see how that was the case with them, how they became a model to follow for others so that we can learn from that and mimic it our, ourselves. So we have been blessed by the gospel, and therefore, I say, we must be a blessing to others. Now, I'm going to try to make a case in the next several minutes that the way that the gospel rang out from Thessalonica, as verse number 8 says it did, that it rang out from them, that the way that that happened was not only by them individually giving the gospel but also by them together participating in the multiplication of churches, that is, church planting. And in doing so, I want to acknowledge my debt to my pastor friend Dave Dorn for the argument, as I heard it from him at a conference several years back, and I thought he made a persuasive case. Now, I mention him because whenever I say something that may be different from what you thought or assumed, I'd like for you to know that people smarter than me have said what I'm going to, going to say. So if we're to be a blessing to others, we must proclaim the gospel. Verse 7 says you became, you became a model. Now when it says you there, our typical reaction to that when we read that in verse number 7, you did whatever. In this case, you became a model. You became an example. When we read you, we tend to personalize, we tend to individualize that. So it's you individually, you personally. But remember who's being addressed here. This is the church corporate. This letter is not sent to individuals. This letter is sent to the church at Thessalonica. We're told that back up in, in verse number one. So this is the you here is the collective church. We tend to see it in an individualistic manner. In fact, individualism has been rampant for decades in evangelical circles so that the work of the local church 
together collectively has been devalued and the ministry of parachurch groups has been exalted. Now, lest you think I overstate that, I want to quote to you the words from a couple of famous evangelicals from about 100 years ago whose teaching has spread through evangelicalism in the decades since. Many of you are familiar with uh, C.I. Schofield, the famous editor of the uh, Schofield Reference Bible, and perhaps fewer are uh, familiar with uh, Lewis uh, Sperry uh, Chafer. Is it Chafer or Schaefer? Che? Chafer? All right, Chafer. He's the founder of Dallas uh, Theological Seminary and was a friend of Schofield's as well. Schofield said this, the visible church as such is charged with no mission. The commission to evangelize the world is personal and not corporate. So far as the scripture goes, the work of evangelization was done by individuals called directly by the Spirit to that work. So people get individually called, they go, and they go do their thing. Chafer said, no responsibility or service is imposed on the church per se. Service, like the gifts of the Spirit by whom service is wrought, is individual. It could not be otherwise. The common phrase, the church's task, is therefore without biblical foundation. It is only when individuals sense their personal responsibility and claim personal divine enablement that Christian work is done. But verse... 8 and the book of Acts that we've been going through, I'm quite convinced teaches something different. Verse 8 starts with the word for in Greek. It's not there in our English translation in the NIV, but it begins with for. So this is how you became a model, for, telling us how they became that example. And at the beginning of verse 9, you also see the word for. Not only in Greek, but in our English Bible too. So they were an example, a model of what genuine conversion looks like in verses 9 and 10. And we see that, and we're going to see some of that at the end of our time together. But in verse 8, what's highlighted as the first thing that makes them a model church. For, and then we're going to see what it, what it is in verse 8. And that is that they were a sounding board for the gospel in their area, but also in the areas beyond. So I ask you to stay with me as over the next few minutes I go through that. Verse 8, how it is that this sounding board that they were was a collective thing that included, of course, their individual giving of the gospel. We need to be reminded at the beginning of this new year that it's God's will for every local church to reproduce itself in the regions around it. But we won't do that if we think in these individualistic terms. We think of the gospel ringing out in verse number 8 as people individually running around giving the gospel, but we should look at it like we have seen over the last several months in the book of Acts. So let me go back further than the church of Thessalonica, and then we'll come up to, to that and remind you as to how we have seen in the book of Acts that the Great Commission moves forward. So let's be reminded of what the Great Commission is. Remember, Jesus gave it in Matthew chapter 28 at the very end. This is the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. He's completed his work, his preaching and his teaching, his death on the cross, his rising from the, the grave. He's preparing to ascend back to the heaven from which he came, and he gives final instructions to his first followers. And he says, go and make disciples of all nations. 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Now, I encourage you to just remember as we move forward or write down, jot down the word baptizing because we're going to see it again in just a minute. And it'll become important, but baptizing. Now, Matthew 28 is the most famous, uh, well-known passage where Jesus gave the Great Commission. But it surprises some to know that it's not the only passage where the Great Commission is given. The Great Commission is actually given in at least two other places. One of those is at the end of Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 24. And in Luke chapter 24, Luke gives us some details about the Great Commission, in particular the preaching that would accompany it. When he records Jesus as saying, repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. So I ask you to write down, remember the word baptizing from Matthew 28. Remember from here, repentance and forgiveness. Repentance and forgiveness of sins. Because we're going to see that again. And then Jesus ascends back to the Father. He gives these final instructions. Go and make disciples of all nations. Baptize them and teach them. And here's going to be the content of the preaching. It's going to be repentance and forgiveness of sins. But wait in the city, Jerusalem, until you receive power to begin the mission that I've assigned to you. And the book of Acts picks up where that left off. And in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, we have yet a third mention of the Great Commission. You will be my witnesses, beginning in Jerusalem and to Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost part of the earth. And then Luke begins to show how that happened. So there they were in Jerusalem waiting, as Jesus told them to, for the power. They were waiting for about a week when in chapter 2 of the book of Acts, when the day of Pentecost had fully come. And we've seen this together as we've gone through the book of Acts. Many of you are familiar with it. But they receive in a, in a miraculous way this power from the Holy Spirit to begin this, this mission. And people don't know what it all means. And so Peter, one of the first apostles, first followers of Jesus, stands up to explain it. And he gives this explanation. And at the end of his explanation, in verse number 37 of Acts chapter 2, the people say, well then, brothers, what shall we do? What do we do in response to this? And here's what, uh, here's what Peter says. Repent. You guys remember seeing the word repent? In Luke 24? Repent and be baptized. Do you remember that? From Matthew 28? Every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins. Remember that from Luke 24. In one verse here, in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, we have encapsulated the beginning of the Great Commission that Jesus gave a week earlier. And what's important for our purposes is this. Not only did the Great Commission begin on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, so does the church. I don't have time to prove to you why it is that the church began at exactly the same time. I did when we went through Acts chapter 2 many months ago. So re-listen to that sermon. But they both start at the same time. And as we go through the book of Acts, the mission and the church go forward together. And as a matter of fact, the way that the mission moves forward is through the multiplication of churches. 
In fact, have you ever considered this, that you cannot, you as an individual believer, cannot fulfill the Great Commission? Because we are not authorized to baptize people, the church is. Individuals don't do that. The local church does. And the local church sends out people like Philip the Evangelist from Jerusalem to do that. They're to be baptized and taught are these disciples, says Jesus, and where are they taught? Christ gave gifts of teaching to the local church when according to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And when Christ ascended, he gave gifts to the church in Ephesians chapter 4, including pastors and teachers of local churches. And in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15, the local church is called, quote, the pillar and foundation of the truth. And so instead of it just being individual people spreading the word around, it was people giving the gospel in a region for sure, personally giving the gospel, inviting people to trust Christ, but then gathering them in assemblies in obedience to what Christ had commanded so they could be baptized and taught. We've seen that pattern in the book of Acts. Out of Jerusalem comes the founding of the church in Antioch. The church in Antioch sends out Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey in Acts chapter 13. And they start another church in another city, also called Antioch, but Antioch in a different region. And that church in Antioch plants at least three other churches in cities called Iconium and Lystra and Derbe. And on their second missionary journey, Paul is sent out again from Antioch now, and he goes to Philippi and to Thessalonica, the people to whom our passage is written, and to Corinth. And when he goes from Antioch to, to Philippi and Thessalonica and Corinth, Thessalonica is in Macedonia. And Corinth is in Achaia. And Paul mentions both of those in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. He makes his way to Ephesus where he spends between two and three years but still other churches are planted, but not directly by Paul, out of the church at Ephesus in the province of Asia. A trained servant named Epaphras went to Colossae and starts the church in Colossae. In fact, here's what Colossians says. Paul writes to him and says, you learned the gospel from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf. He's going out to do what, what we do. He is working hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Apparently, this man planted a church in Colossae, Hierapolis, and Laodicea. And these churches are all in Asia Minor, and yet Luke could say, while Paul was in one location in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19, here's what he says, notice this, all the Greeks, Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Really, all of them, every last one, heard the word of the Lord? Now, when we went through that several weeks ago, I just in passing made the comment, it doesn't mean every single person heard, but that Paul's work there was done so that the gospel is available now to that region. Now, stay with me. Paul wrote the book of Romans while he was in Corinth, located in the province that's right next to, adjacent to, Thessalon where Thessalonica is located. 
Thessalonica is in Macedonia, Corinth is in Achaia. These two places mentioned in verses 7 and 8 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And while he's in Achaia, in Corinth to be exact, he writes the church in Rome and he's telling them he wants to visit them in Rome as he makes his way to Spain, but he says, first, I have some work to finish where I am. And this is what he says to the Roman church. There is no place for me, no more place for me to work in these regions. And if you look at Romans chapter 15, the regions he's talking about are Macedonia and Achaia. The work, is, the work is done. It's not that everyone there had come to faith in Christ, and so his work is done. It's not that every individual had been reached. We know that not all of them had been reached because Paul wrote a second letter to the Thessalonians from Corinth, the same place that he wrote Romans, and he said this, pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil people for not everyone in Corinth and Achaia has faith. Not everybody has been saved. So his work wasn't winning everybody to Christ. His work was to establish, now hear this, beachheads for the work of Jesus Christ in building his church that then they would accept, those churches would accept the responsibility to spread it through the rest of the region. And when he had done that, now he could move on. He says to the Romans, I plan to come to you on my way to Spain. My work here is done, apparently because enough churches have been planted. And he says to them this, from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum. Now that's yet another province adjacent to Macedonia. I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. There are churches here. I need to go to places where there are not churches, gospel preaching churches. Illyricum is what was until recently Yugoslavia, now called uh, Serbia, Montenegro. And all of these places, Macedonia, Achaia, Illyricum, and Asia Minor, and the cities that those provinces contain, like Philippi and Thessalonica and Corinth and Ephesus and Colossae and Laodicea and Hierapolis, they are all in the eastern part of the Roman Empire. Paul has seen churches planted and those churches engaging in the spread of the gospel by partnering to see others move forward. And once there's a church there, his work is done so he can move now to the western part of the empire, to Rome and Spain. And these new churches caught on quickly that this is our mission, this is what we're to do, we're to partner together to see this move forward. For example, think about the relationship between the very first church plant on the continent of Europe. We saw it in Acts chapter 16 in the city of Philippi. And think about the relationship between the church in Philippi and the church in Thessalonica that Paul's writing to in our passage. Acts chapter 16 tells us that Paul went to Philippi, that God blessed the preaching of the gospel, the assembly was formed, and then he left Philippi and he went next to Thessalonica. Look at chapter 2. You're in chapter 1. Look at chapter 2. In verse 2. Every now and then it's good to just say, hey, look at something. And then it takes you, and there's just that momentary two seconds where people kind of come out of the trance, and they say, oh, he wants us to do something. 
So turn the page to chapter 2 and look at verse 2. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. And so Paul left Philippi. He went to Thessalonica, as we saw a few months ago back in Acts chapter 17. And Paul was not in Thessalonica very long. Most believe he was there only for two or three months at most. But here's what Paul said to the Philippians. When I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Now, Philippi itself was an infant church, having just been started months earlier, and yet they had embraced the mission of Jesus Christ together that Paul was advancing, so much so that they actually, on at least, he says more than once, so at least two times, they sent people with gifts to help Paul advance the work in Thessalonica. And he calls that, in Philippians chapter 1, their partnership in the gospel. He says, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. This is how Philippi was helping the word ring out into that region. They were supporting the work as it went to another city to see the gospel planted there in Thessalonica and a church established there. And that's what was happening throughout the work that was taking place in the early churches of the first century that we find in Scripture. And that's how, verse 8, the word rings out. It's a word for trumpeted, reverberates outward through churches doing the work of establishing other churches that will handle the work of the gospel in their area. And Thessalonica was a model of that. And in his second letter to them, he asked them to pray that what has happened to them would happen in other places so that that will be replicated. He says this, pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored just as it was with you. And how was it with them? They were planted. The word rang out from them to the areas around them Yes, in individual evangelism, but in gathering then those people into churches that were formed and planted. It means for us then, friends, that we've got to take care of business in our area first and see the work of the Lord move to other areas beyond. We have to grow here. And when I say grow here, I mean first and foremost grow spiritually and then because healthy things multiply, we'll grow numerically as well. We need to continue to grow spiritually and numerically here and so expand beyond here with other churches planted elsewhere. It's a tall order. It's a blessed order. It's Jesus' order. It's the Great Commission. And it's the pattern of the New Testament. And it is the one that I... I've endeavored to establish in my own ministry here so that we can it can be carried on all the more robustly as the foundation that we've established is carried forward in the future. And so, our church's 10-year plan has both of these. It has our own growth, but then it has in the outgrowth of that, us establishing churches 
beyond ourselves. We have five years to go on that 10-year plan. And I'll talk about uh, what we are doing to move it forward next week and perhaps the week, the week after. So we have to be a blessing to others by proclaiming the gospel. Yes, individual evangelism, but collectively putting our efforts together to see churches planted elsewhere and partnering with others to do that. We must be a blessing to others by proclaiming the gospel and we must display the gospel. This is the second four. The first one was in verse 8 that's not in your English uh, translation. But in verse 9, you have another four. For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. How's the gospel displayed? It's displayed a couple of ways. It's displayed through conversion. Convert. We, we use the word you know, salvation, becoming a Christian, being converted, conversion, but perhaps we don't think about what that means. To convert means to turn. And the idea of moving forward in your Christian life is you do not revert to what you were. So you convert, a conversion. Contrary to those who say no change is necessary, necessarily occurs for those who are saved, the evidence of the Thessalonians' genuine salvation is their conversion to God from their idols. And note, it's to God first, and the result of consecrating themselves to God means i got to get rid of some stuff. And so it's from idols. To God and from idols. Friends, it's not so much, though, what we give up, but what we embrace that results in the giving up. We embrace Christ. We embrace His message. We embrace a new life. And that means giving some things up that don't fit the pattern of the Christian life. When we love the Lord with all of our heart, with all of our mind and all of our soul, which Jesus said is the first and greatest commandment, then there are things that we put away. And the Bible calls those worthless things idols. And for you and me, those idols are not metal, stone, wood, things that we fashion. But rather they are what the prophet Ezekiel said, idols of the heart. Ezekiel said these men have set up idols in their hearts. And these idols in the heart can be career, family, our bodies, our money, the list goes on. And we know that the Thessalonians did not bow at the altar of money because they are commended in the Bible for giving to the advance of the gospel, even though they themselves were poor. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 says, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches, that would include Thessalonica, out of their most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. They gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. The biblical mission that I talked about a bit ago, that it's the Great Commission moving forward in the form of churches being multiplied. It cannot go forward, as it should, so long as we, any of us, worship at the altar of materialism. The great missionaries all pursued lives of simplicity for the sake of the gospel. We're told elsewhere in Scripture that we should be content with food and clothing. 
First Timothy chapter 6 and verse 6 says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it, but if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. The food and clothing, you might be saying, can I have a roof over my head <laughs> as well? It's just a way of saying the necessities of life. We'll be content with the necessities of life. Hear this, a radical Christian life is a normal Christian life lived with radically different values for a radically different purpose. What looks radical to everybody else is just the normal Christian life. But a life lived with radically different values and for a radically different end. And those who are converted leave the idols to serve God. And so the gospel is displayed in our lives by conversion as we replace idols with love for God. And finally, we display the gospel by anticipation. Verse 10. To wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. If we are to exercise the stewardship necessary to maximize our effectiveness for the gospel, then we will need to be people who defer gratification. We look forward to something in the future, and we will wait for it in the future. We don't have to have everything. We don't have to have much of anything even now. Deferred gratification. But we find it very hard because we want everything now and we find it hard to defer that gratification and to endure discomfort or inconvenience. But hear this, friends. If we believe our reward is in the next life, then we will have the freedom to work with all we have in this life. And that's what we need to start 2023 with, a resolve to do that. Here's your take-home truth. Because we've been blessed by the gospel, we must bless others with the gospel. Let's bow together. Our Father, I thank you for the gospel work that's displayed in this group of people. I thank you for the brothers and sisters that are in this auditorium. Each of them with their own testimony of how you worked in their lives to bring them to yourself. We thank you, Lord, in your grace for your own purposes, inexplicable to us, for choosing us, and for the evidence of that choice being seen in a changed life, changed priorities, changed allegiances, changed values. And I thank you for my brothers and sisters here who show that. And Lord, we then as individuals who have been changed by you, you have in your providence brought together to this place and this time to carry on your work. And so, Lord, I thank you for that. I thank you that as we start now a new year, that we can be reminded of what that work is and that we collectively, shoulder to shoulder, move forward as one body to see your fame spread in this region and beyond. I ask you, Lord, to help me to be faithful. Help me to care more about you, more about what matters to you than the things that would distract and draw me away. I pray that you would help us, all of us, to do the same. As we start this new year and we make resolutions, many good but lesser resolutions, 
May the top of our list be, I resolve to serve my God with all that he gives me in the year to come. As a result of that, we pray that your fame will be spread in Trenton, beyond Trenton, and that you will call servants to yourself who are willing to go out to plant those new churches, people who are willing to sacrifice and to go with them. Lord, at the end of our lives, whenever that is, we'll be able to look back and say, look what God did. Granting us joy in the journey and the joy of seeing your work spread in your world. Thank you for letting us be a part of that. We give this next year to you because we completely trust you. And so we entrust it to you. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together for our closing song.